0: 100 years ago, a flu virus devastated the world, killing off as much as 5% of humankind. There have been a number of medical advances in the intervening years, but the viruses have advanced as well. Would the world effectively unite against another global pandemic? Or would it rip us apart? This is Radio Atlantic. Hi, I'm Matt Thompson, executive editor of The Atlantic. Here with me in the studio are two Atlantic staff writers, um, both science writers, Sarah Zhang. Hello, Sarah. Hello. And Ed Yong. Hello, Ed. Hello, hello. You last heard Ed sonorous tones perhaps um, reading E.M. Forster's The Machine Stops. <laughs> as, as your rent-a-brit. <laughs> yes, so great. <laughs> uh, quick programming note, um, Jeff and Alex are both off gallivanting this week, but they will be back soon. So, Ed, Sarah, we have talked about a lot of different threats on Radio Atlantic, threats to liberal democracy, nuclear threats, concerns about terrorism and technology and more. However, there's one giant global threat that always seems to get underweighted next to the tremendous risk that it poses us pandemics. As we speak, in the year 2018, it's a century since a horrific flu virus swept across the world's population in 1918, killing as many as 100 million people. It's unimaginable. 5% of the world's population died in that 1918 flu. Ed, you recently traveled around the world looking into the Band of scientists protecting us from such a catastrophe today. So I just wanted to ask, as a wide open question, how much safer are we from <laughs> the pandemics than we were in 1918? Well, um, Okay,
1: let's do let's do the good news first. Um, obviously, in a century of progress um, and advancement, um, we have a lot of advantages that the good people of 1918 did not. Um, we have uh, we have better ways of treating people. We have the uh, infrastructure for uh, creating flu vaccines. Um, we have surveillance systems that allow us to monitor what is going on with influenza viruses around the world world, in people, and in animals. So... In, in many ways, we are better prepared and much safer than we were um, 100 years ago. That being said, there, is, uh, there, is a, there are a lot of causes for concern too. For example, the world is, is changed. Um, back then, there were, what, 2 billion people, um, probably just over that. Um, now, there are more than 7 billion people around the world. And uh, those people uh, are now living mostly in urban centres where um, humans are very densely packed and where diseases can more easily spread. Um, We live in a world of uh, intense air travel, of of globalization, where it's very, very easy for people from any part of the world to get to any other part of the world within a day or so. Um, That wasn't true back in 1918. So the the ability of diseases to spread now is much greater. um, And Unfortunately, the number of diseases that we have to worry about is, uh, if anything, increasing. So there are um, all kinds of new contagions that we have uh, only recently learned about. Um, things like uh, like Ebola, like Nipah, Hendra, MERS, SARS. Uh, and flu, that age-old adversary, is still very much around um, in lots of new uh, and constantly shifting guises. Flu is a constantly evolving adversary um and since 1918 um it has triggered several pandemics none of which were quite as bad but that shouldn't lure us into a false sense of security a, a flu pandemic um uh, caused by a strain that was um as lethal as the one in 1918 uh, could cause immense devastation even today yeah. um And, you know, we we only have to look to 2009, less than a decade ago, to understand how we might be taken off guard. So uh, the 2009 flu pandemic happened despite the fact that flu was the disease we were arguably best prepared for. Um, Our surveillance networks, our ability to spot new strains of flu, were um, concentrated in East Asia at uh, H5N1 uh, bird flu that was seen as the biggest threat then. Uh, it missed the rise of new strains of H1N1 swine flu um, in Mexico. Um, so those strains uh, were only detected after they'd been circulating for months and after they started sickening some people in California. So right in our backyard, we we uh, failed to realise uh, that this, these new strains of potentially pandemic flu were developing. Mm. Um, when they uh, circulated around the US, um, hospitals were struck very thin they weren't overwhelmed but uh, pediatric units were stretched thin intensive care units were stretched thin um, a lot of uh, equipment that put people on life support um, that uh, were were um, in short supply um, and this was for a pandemic that uh, many saw as as sort of a dress rehearsal for something bigger you know training wheels pandemic that really wasn't actually that powerful and um, mm. Uh, and finally, um, our our infrastructure for making vaccines wasn't able to rise to the occasion. Um, we do have flu vaccines. That is something we don't have for the vast majority of new diseases that could potentially threaten us. Um, and yet, um, those vaccines need to change on a regular basis because flu is such a constantly shifting adversary. Um, and back in 2009, our ability to make vaccines against the um, pandemic strain uh, was too slow. Um, it By the time the first doses rolled out, um, the peak of the pandemic had had already passed. So we were effectively vaccinating survivors, um, which is not really what you want to do. Yeah. Um, you know, this year uh, the seasonal flu, which wasn't even a pandemic strain, managed to stretch the healthcare system um, to uh, to a a concerning point. Um, And I think this just goes to show that even for something like flu, which we know well, which we understand well, and which we are arguably readier for than anything else, um, that can still cause us problems.
0: You traveled all across the world uh, Mm -hmm. basically reporting this story, looking at what would happen um, Mm -hmm. if a plague were to hit. Mm -hmm. What did you find on the other side of the world? Um, What did you find in – the Congo. Yeah. So so I went to um, this city called Kikwit in the
1: Democratic Republic of Congo, which um, experienced a devastating outbreak of Ebola back in 1995. And it was that outbreak that was one of the reasons that uh, Ebola became the infamous menace that it is today. I think um, it was the second or third, depending on how you count it, outbreak that the Congo had experienced. And certainly the first one that um, was captured by journalists and news crews. And then it showed what an Ebola outbreak truly would be like. And Mm. I wanted to see how the country had moved on from that. Um, you know almost uh, almost two decades on so I saw um, the hospital uh, where uh, that acted as one of the epicenters of the outbreak I went to the site of the mass graves um, where people were buried I mm. talked to people who had survived the outbreak and found out what their lives had been like since and what I found um, was in, in many ways, similar to what I learned talking to people in the US, uh, many of the themes on this issue of preparedness were the same in the two countries, despite the fact that um, there is a vast gulf in their wealth and the amount of resources they have. People in the Congo were talking about how um, how subject preparedness is to um, political attention uh, yeah. and to this cycle of panic and neglect, how after the Kikwit outbreak, um, surveillance systems were put in, protective equipment was widely distributed. And then as time passed, All of that uh, preparedness dwindled. Um, People started to forget. Resources started disappearing. They were uh, taken away for other purposes um, and they weren't replaced. So to this date, people in the Congo are very, very... um, uh, savvy when it comes to Ebola and a lot of other diseases that, that vex them locally. Um, they know what to do. They know what symptoms to look for. But they don't have the resources to, to actually protect themselves, to investigate potential new outbreaks very well. Um, you know, they, they are very good at controlling the diseases in their borders. But I think they are still subject to, to the psychological problems that befuddle preparedness against diseases across the entire entire worlds and and by that i mean things like forgetfulness and shortsightedness yeah um, and people in the States who I talked to said exactly the same things to me, starting from a very, very different base point, but um, but but very similar in kind, that um, we go through these crises where um, things like uh, Ebola happens, we respond to the West African outbreak, we worry about Ebola reaching our shores, uh, investments rise, and then they fall. Um, Zika appears um, within uh, within America's borders, uh, and again investments rise, attention peaks, but then slowly they dwindle. and And this seems to be the the underlying problem that stops us from becoming truly prepared to deal with the um, disease threats of the future. That um, that these risks operate across time spans that go longer than political cycles. Yeah.
0: Sarah, do you think that there's any way that we could break out of that sort of cyclicality, given your attention to the vagaries of science and the public response to it?
2: Yeah, that's such a good question, right? So I think one of the themes that Ed's really hits on in uh, his story is that um, leadership matters and who we have at the top matters. But maybe what we really need to be resilient is to build a system where it doesn't matter who it is at the top a type of a system. that, you know, it could be anonymous, you know rather anonymous epidemiologists, um, and they go about their work regardless of uh, who is at the top of directing their attention to it. Like, you know, it's just kind of an automatic reflex that's in the system.
0: Yeah, uh, that illustrates one point that was implicit in your story, Ed. Um, anonymous epidemiologists are, um, are legion, probably not legion enough, but there are. <laughs> Toiling in the laboratories of the world, there are all of these individuals who will be called upon to step up in the event of some sort of out of control virus. Who are some of the memorable individuals that you encountered on your journey at, into our public health supply chain?
1: Oh my God, there, there, are, there are so many of them, um, and um, and a, a lot of them, you know, weren't even in the piece. I feel like public health folks are are the unsung heroes here. Yes. You know, yeah. <laughs> The, the the work they do is is often um, not not sexy or glamorous, but it's the work that keeps us all alive. You know, I went to a um, a public health lab in Wisconsin that acts as um, a big center for for flu surveillance in the country um, and you know back in the 2009 uh, pandemic they were really working um, 24-hour days um, mm. they were doing the diagnostic tests that actually told people whether they had flu or not and these are the same people who are also doing like screening for newborns and who are checking out like food contamination or water contamination um, you know they are um, when when a pandemic Hits. It's not like you can suddenly parachute in this like emergency team, who whose job is to take take care of things like you do. You, want, like you see in you know movies like Contagion, <laughs> it's the same people who are you know doing this hard work day in day out who have to rise to the occasion.
0: You mean that like Rafe Fiennes isn't going to show up? But <laughs> <laughs> that's right.
1: Yeah. That, right, right. Right. Or like you know Kate Winslet leading yeah. like a, a yeah. who a who drop team. Um, yeah, that's that's sadly not going to happen. This is um, making the flu
0: seem even worse. <laughs> <laughs> right,
1: um, and and, um, and those people are um, chronically underfunded. Um, you know, and uh, and they are understaffed. Um, if you look at um, budgets that have gone into public health preparedness uh, over the last decade and perhaps longer, or that go into training epidemiologists, to funding public health labs, to getting hospitals ready for future diseases, there's just been a downward trajectory. Um, you know, their, their funds have, have started at high points and then have gone down. And that's a problem that, uh, you know, has transcended administration, sadly. It, it, you know, it was very prevalent during the last one. It is still a problem in, in this one.
2: So when I was reporting on the Ebola outbreak in 2014, I remember learning and realizing that there are three top biocontainment units in the country. Uh, One of them uh, near the CDC, one of them near the National Institutes of Health, and the last one in uh, Nebraska. Hmm. Uh, One of these maybe just feels like it doesn't quite belong. Um, So you actually go to Nebraska. How did Nebraska end up being one of the most prepared places in the country for an outbreak?
1: Yeah, so uh, Nebraska has this um, biocontainment unit, which is this... Kind of special ward that is um, specifically designed to deal with things like ebola like sars bioterror attacks are like the deadliest of the deadliest infectious diseases um, and I think it's instructive how they became prepared. So after SARS in 2003, um, and after a uh, outbreak in the Midwest of monkeypox, of all things, uh, one of the uh, heads of the University of Nebraska Medical Center, a man named Phil Smith, decided the hospital really needed to get its act together, to create a place that could handle people with these conditions. Um, and it created the unit then, and... Then nothing happened. You know, there wasn't another SARS. There wasn't another Ebola. This unit sat dormant. uh, And a a woman named Shelley Schwedhelm, Helped to keep it afloat, uh, she and her team helped to make the case for why this unit was important and why its existence was was paramount. Um, and uh, because of that that vision, um, the the unit was ready in 2014 uh, when uh, Ebola actually arrived in Nebraska. When uh, when Americans who had been dealing with the outbreak in West Africa had to be medevaced uh, over to the U.S. Uh, uh, to to be treated with Ebola. Um, And uh, I think it just goes to show that preparedness often becomes this matter of individual will. It you know, becomes the result of specific people who understand the need for it uh, and who can make the case for it even if there's no immediate danger banging on their doors. And you you sort of need that. You need people to put aside resources and money and physical spaces in the event of something that will happen in the future, even if that event may not happen for years or, or maybe even decades And that's a that's a tough investment to to justify in the face of all these other health crises that are that are so, uh, you know, in our faces right now.
0: One of the just a striking fact came from a conversation with with Bill Gates, um, who said that a simulation that he'd seen showed that a severe flu pandemic could kill, quote, more than 33 million people worldwide in just 250 days. Mm. How would you compare um, the scale of the public health apparatus that you were able to observe to the scale of potential calamity um, that's at risk here?
1: Yeah, I think, um, I think it's fair to say that those two things feel out of proportion to each other. You know, pu- public health is something that, uh, uh, as I said, I think is, is underfunded, and underappreciated, and yet it is our bulwark against um, what what seems to be one of the greatest threats that we might have to face in the future. Um, you know, the problem of infectious diseases isn't going away. if anything it it it's getting worse as the world changes and the number of new diseases rises. Um, and yet we we just seem um we just seem psychologically and societally ill-equipped to um, make the lo- stable sustainable investments we need to properly defend ourselves against it yeah
2: it's kind of a political problem right like you don't you don't get credit for uh, preventing a terrorist attack because people don't understand the depth of the devastation that would have happened you don't get credit for preventing a pandemic because people it was a hypothetical. They didn't realize what could have happened.
0: But one of the implicit themes, Sarah, that you um, that you've written about um, a fair amount, has been um, the nature of the public response to science and the politics around science. And um, what do you think would happen if a politician were to to demagogue the flu, <laughs> were to talk <laughs> about the flu the way that sometimes the Trump administration talks about, say, the the tiny strand of people that are in MS13.
2: Uh, Well, we have seen politicians demigod Ebola, right? Um, I think uh, what would be interesting with the flu is that um, there's so much that that intersects with. Uh, public health and uh, short-term political interest, and they do not always align and, in fact, may often not align. So if you see a case where a flu is coming from another country, and, you know, we, we call the 1980 flu the Spanish flu. It mm-hmm. probably did not actually come from Spain, but you could very easily see how a shorthand like that could mm. become, like, this is a foreign thing, a foreign pestilence that's coming to invade us. And right. I think that could be really problematic.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. But you, would there be chances of a politician using this power for good? I mean, could you, <laughs> I mean, could, could you imagine someone campaigning on a, I want to eradicate the killer that might fell tens of thousands of Americans this I, I year"? I see
1: Ed making a pain face. Yes, I do too. <laughs> um, I mean, you know, nothing, nothing is impossible. Um, but um, I, I think it's. I think the problem with all of this is that. Um, Diseases, by their very nature, are, are sort of invisible. You know, it's hard to it's hard to picture in your mind what the threat looks like. It doesn't have a face, um, and and it, it therefore, I think, makes it hard to um, to really appreciate the, uh, the the nature of the threat. I, I think Sarah is I think Sarah is right that the more likely direction is that um, these threats are used um, to to stoke fear of the other, of uh, people coming in from other parts of the world and bringing diseases with them. We saw this play out um, during the Ebola outbreak um, that hit West Africa. Um, So, uh, you know, a A magazine published a cover about how um, people were going to bring Ebola into the States uh, because they were like taking bushmeat with them. Um, pe- para- all kinds of like paranoid thinking emerged uh, and were fanned uh, online by the man who is now in the oval office. Um Trump tweeted about how um Obama was crazy uh, and a psycho for not banning flights from the countries that were affected even though no Actual direct flights existed. Um, he he uh, mocked the president for um, for sending troops over. For uh, he he derided him for um, allowing Americans who had become affected infected while trying to help control the outbreak, allowing them back into the country. Uh, they should basically be left to die. Is what he was saying mm. that they should suffer the consequences for their altruism. Um, and you could just imagine that, um, that, that might uh, how that might play out in, in a future um, epidemic. Um, when outbreaks like this happen, the things that we need are um, a unifying spirit and calm authoritative reliable information none of these things were evident during uh, the response to the um, West African Ebola outbreak from the people who now hold the reins of power and i think it, it you know it i'm not super confident that um, that those qualities will manifest in the future.
2: And to just add one more example, um, uh, there's a bacterial disease called leptospirosis um, that is kind of common in deserts. And when we were talking about Syrian refugees coming in, this was a thing on right-wing websites. They were saying the refugees who bring in this bacterial disease into the U.S.,
0: so it's all entangled. Our thoughts about refugees also inflect the preparedness for uh, for a pandemic, perhaps. Um, so you know, we can go uh, deeper into the, <laughs> the dark times <laughs> and the political challenges. But I'm curious, what are the bright spots, Ed, as you've looked into um, the matter of, of public health preparedness? Um, what do you find that you're optimistic about?
1: So I think that um, we've seen a few. We've seen a few moves um, over the last decade, and certainly since um, that big Ebola outbreak in West Africa, that are are reassuring that provide some hope that the world is finally getting it. Um, so uh, the U.S. has an agency called Barda, um, which uh, acts sort of like a venture capital firm within the government. And that that has funded uh, the development of countermeasures against future threats. It funded the creation of a uh, vaccine making plant in North Carolina that um, has the ability to churn out vaccines far more quickly than than um, uh, previous techniques could do. Mm-hmm. Um, there is also an organization called CEPI, which is the uh, Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Interventions. Um, my God, there are a lot of acronyms <laughs> in this field. Uh, but CEPI is an international um, alliance of uh, governments uh, and nonprofits that is trying to prepare vaccines against deadly potential future th- uh, uh, infectious threats. So, um, for the moment, it's focusing on Nipah virus, uh, MERS and Lassa fever and trying to create vaccines for them and getting them to to a point where they could be field tested if outbreaks of of these three diseases actually happen. They're also investing in creating uh, what are called platform technologies, which are like sort of like plug-and-play tools that will allow you to create vaccines against new unseen threats very, very quickly by um, kind of uh, by by taking um, whatever is new and plugging it into a system that is old and tried and tested and already uh, approved by regulators yeah Um, so the fact the the existence of those agencies suggests to me that um, that this is is being taken seriously um, as is uh, a agreement called the global health security agenda uh, which is trying to get um, nations all around the world to uh, live up to um, an internationally agreed upon framework for like what preparedness looks like it's trying to to get everyone onto the same page of where everyone should be in terms of fighting infectious diseases and and how uh, different countries can get there.
0: So there are bright spots. That is good to hear. (laughs) So stick with us in a moment. We will turn from bright spots to the politics of public health. A lot about the infrastructure and the response to pandemics here in the U.S. Sarah, I'm curious what we can learn from other global players.
2: Yeah, so I think a good example of this is uh, SARS back in uh, 2002, 2003. Um, So SARS started in China, and when this was happening, China, you know, obviously did not want to be known as the site of a new unknown virus outbreak. So it really did not want to talk about it, and for months was not telling the World Health Organization what was going on, was not letting people from the WHO come into the country to investigate. And during this time, of course, the virus was spreading and we have airplanes. It was, you know, getting all over the world. Um, and so it's, it's you know, we talk about this globalized world uh, and we're also at a moment where the, later, the administration in the U.S. is becoming increasingly isolationist and increasingly suspicious of the global community. Um, we've been talking about how that might affect us in the U.S., but when we do not want to participate in a global community, that is bad for the rest of the world as well.
0: Hmm. Talk about some of the specific ways in which um, our instinct, perhaps, to shut down the borders in a crisis actually is counterproductive. To protecting folks,
2: yeah. Well, I think one of the uh, one of the things that comes up when you have an epidemic is that uh, people are really scared of each other, right? Because each person becomes a vector for the virus or for the disease. So when we when we shut down the borders, that is a drastic step. This is saying like. This is, you know, if you think this is worth doing, this must this must be really, really bad. So when you uh, stigmatize this illness so that people don't want to go to health officials, don't want anyone to know that they are sick, you're actually driving it underground. You're making it harder to figure out what's going on. You're making it harder to contain it. And Mm. you just you're operating in the dark with much less information.
0: So is the
1: answer to not be afraid I think the answer is to realise that um, no single country can deal with this problem alone. every this is a global issue that the world needs to work together on and things like travel bans um b- border shutdowns they're just deeply unef- ineffective and also um very counterproductive if if america had not sent people to west africa during that big ebola outbreak the um, outbreak would have become even bigger than it actually was um, which would then have increased the risk of people traveling to other parts of the world and for the thing to really start raging out of control. Um, And if you shut down travel and if you close your borders, you're also saying to people within your country, do not go and help people abroad because you won't be able to get back in. And that also increases the risk that uh, outbreaks elsewhere in the world will rage out of control. I think the simple fact is that in this globalized world, you just can't. Um, you you can't stop diseases from spreading through um, things like walls um, or or travel bans or, or whatnot. You know, you, you the the best way to do it is through global cooperation, is by um, uh, rich nations helping poorer nations to shore up their own defences, to increase their ability to to deal with their uh, deal with and control their own outbreaks, to help them uh, set up labs, train epidemiologists, um, and this isn't even a case of. Um, uh nations like the US sort of parachuting in to help out when when problems are afoot it, it's about building local capacity And we've seen really good examples like this uh, all over the world, Um, thanks to uh, investments from the US and other countries. um, Uganda, for example, is now very good at doing surveillance for Ebola and other viral hemorrhagic fevers. Their outbreaks used to um, spread to hundreds of people. Now they, you know, there's there've been many, many outbreaks which whose case numbers you can count on a single hand. In Nigeria. there were huge concerns that when a Liberian American man arrived in Lagos, um, the the most popular city in Africa, that this was going to trigger uh, a a huge and, and devastating new phase uh, of the Ebola outbreak. Um, but Nigeria already had this incredible health infrastructure for eradicating polio, uh, and all of those people and those resources could be diverted to dealing with the Ebola, and so that outbreak never happened. Um, it, Ebola was brought to heel in in um, in what many feared would be the nightmare scenario. Um, so there are so many examples where investments from the US and other rich nations have already paid off around the world. And those are the investments that we need in order to make everyone safer. Th- this idea of um, America first um, cannot translate to America alone um, when it comes to diseases. Um, even if you don't really buy into the moral uh, imperative of of helping other countries um from a purely selfish standpoint still the best thing to do is to help other people uh, like other nations
0: yeah um sarah how do how do we get better as a population about dealing with things like the flu uh, you've written recently about the dynamics of recent flu outbreaks. And I'm curious, what, sh- how should individual people think about their own preparedness?
2: Uh, I think I heard this from my colleague, Egg, that there's nothing they can really do as an individual. Um, I, I don't mean that in like, you know, we're all helpless, but that uh, the things that we need are, are systemic. Um, You know, so one of the problems that happened with the flu this past year is uh, we ran out of IV bags, you know, very simple Mm. intravenous solution because they were being manufactured on Puerto Rico. And when the hurricane hit, uh, they stopped making them. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you literally had stories of people, you know, uh, learning things they had to doing things they hadn't do in 30 years, like slowly injecting fluid into someone's body because they had run out of this very, very simple thing, IV bags. Mm. Um, So, you know. You have there are networks of people that need to be in place. There are supply chains that need to be shored up. Um, these are all things that we can anticipate because we've been through them before, but there just needs to be the will to do them.
0: Yeah. How, Ed, from your observation, um, traveling to different um, different spots, how good is the network of global coordination and collaboration mm-hmm. around, um, around the potential of a pandemic or around the viruses, the outbreaks that we have seen?
1: I mean, I would say that it's... um it varies depend, uh, depending on the place um, there are lots of parts in the world that I think um, are working very well together to to build up their own defences you know there's um, I I got to go to the Congo because um, a team uh, of researchers from the University of California Los Angeles led by Anne Ramoyne um, an epidemiologist um, had established a long working relationship there um, they were friends with um congolese virologists and epidemiologists Um, and uh, and you know and the congo i would say is a place that actually hasn't had that substantial an investment from uh, from the u.s and other other western nations Um, but but i think this ethic of of creating um those connections um It is vitally important because with those connections comes trust. And that's crucial in an outbreak situation. You need to know who you can rely on. And if there are already established working relationships, those can really be brought to bear on a new crisis. Um, And I think that's one that's a thing that is imperiled at the moment. Um, A lot of those relationships have been very slowly built up over time. Many of them are still quite new. Um, The CDC, um, in the wake of the Ebola outbreak, used large pots of money that were committed to fighting Ebola and towards the global health security agenda to increase their presence um, in a lot of countries around the world, to to build those relationships, to help um, shore up those local defences. um, but uh, those investments are now drying up. Uh, Trump's budget for 2019 would entail a 67% cut to mm. the money that's been committed, that's been uh, used so far for the global health security agenda. And that lack of money translates into lack of jobs, lack of people on the ground, the CDC will, and other agencies will have to pull back their presence um, in other parts of the world where these disease threats um, are, are uh, very much live. Um, and if they do that, what that means is that those those relationships on the ground, that trust that it's been built up, will start to fray and break um and that's that's a problem you know we if anything we need to double down uh we need to make those relationships even stronger than they have been before um i think that our ability to prepare for these threats um is as sarah said um A systemic thing, you know, it has to do with uh, travel routes and supply chains. Um, Mm -hmm. But on top of that, it also boils down to these very individual relationships. You know, it's it's two people who know each other and who get who know how to get the job done. Um, But those two things feed into each other. You know, our lack of political will, our lack of sustainable investments, translates into uh, a lack of relationships and trust on the ground.
0: And so I ask again, <laughs> why is this not uh, treated as a sort of big "Let's get the world together"? There's this hypothetical that we've discussed on the show, and we discuss, a, a, you know, you'll hear this around like um, dorm room conversations for kids in college. The, this, the, uh, if aliens were to invade the planet,
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, would that drive humankind apart? or would that bring humankind together? And why in the face of such an enormous potential devastating population level threat, why isn't that more of a galvanizing force to draw more uh, investment and focus? I th- I think you're right. It
1: should be a unifying force. Um, I sometimes I often think of um, of pandemic threats as like the squid monster from Watchmen. Um, <laughs> spoiler alert for anyone who's not read Watchmen. Um, you know, like this 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 unifying threat that affects everyone and that really ought to bring bring together like uh, warring, polarized, partisan factions. Um, but I think the the problem is that. Um, Unlike, say, natural disasters, which are caused by these abstract, external, um, you know, almost uh, mythological forces like volcanoes and earthquakes, um, which which make it easier for people to sort of rally against, um, infectious diseases spread through people through the microbes that we carry in our blood and our breath, and um, so other people become vectors. They become um, sources of contagion. Um, and it's been said to me by several public health people that um, while disasters can bring communities together, um, diseases often tear them apart. They, they turn people against their neighbors. Um, and uh, they they have this sort of inherent divisive quality to them. And I think that's why it's so important to, to counteract that with a spirit of unification uh, that, that needs to be Portrayed by our leaders and that needs to be woven into the way we deal with the rest of the world um, You know it, it in many ways um, this this global Zeitgeist of xenophobia and nationalism is is exactly the opposite of what we need to deal with infectious disease threats. Um, a, a woman named Paddy Sabetti, um, who uh, works at Harvard um, and who has been involved in dealing with Ebola, um, said to me that um, you know viruses really are the in many ways the one unifying threat. You know, they should be the thing that uh, humanity takes a global stance against. Uh, whether we have the wisdom and the foresight to actually do that or not is an open question. But I, I think you're right that they they ought to unify us, and we can't we can't stop them if we're not unified.
0: Sarah, one of the things that drives us apart, as we saw in the West African Ebola outbreak um, several years ago, is just pure blind panic. Not knowing what to do and Mm -hmm. confronting something incredibly scary. Um, What is the role that panic plays in the spread of an outbreak? And how do we – talking about the psychological approach to to dealing well with the possibility of a pandemic – um, how do we prevent panics from breaking out?
2: Yeah, I think what's so scary about an outbreak isn't just that people get sick or die, is that it really tears apart the fabric of society, right? Like, um, it, it changes how you interact with people. Um, there are photos of, you know, this, the 1918 flu epidemic. Like, uh, court is being held outside because everyone is afraid of being indoors. Um, with the Ebola outbreak, you see that people uh, people, it was spreading because of their funeral practices. And, you know, this is something that is very deeply felt in the community, but you had, they had to stop it. Um, I, I think panic is is useful if it can help us in the pre- prevention. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think uh, once a virus is spreading, it taps so much into like our primal fears that it makes us suspicious of each other. And I, I, I hope that, you know, the The maybe slight sense of panic we can get from reading Ed's piece makes us slightly more prepared to deal
0: with that. (laughs) And misinformation flies
1: around. Yeah. um, and, and I think um, it, it heightens um, some of our worst inth- instincts, like racism, like xenophobia. Yeah. Um, you know, when when Ebola fears were at their peak, um, people were um, people were told to go home, um, to take sick days, as kids were sort of pulled out of school, and often like not with 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 no uh with no reason um you know people people were told to go home because they had just come back from like different parts of africa that had nothing to do with the outbreak um you know the 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 poor sense of geography coupled with You know this this sort of growing uh, tendency to mistrust people from different backgrounds or different skin colors. I think is going to is going definitely has caused problems before um, during outbreaks past and will likely do so again in the future.
0: What do you think an effective policy political response is to that like what do you show me tell me an example of a politician uh, doing the right thing Um, a woman named Mary Bassett
1: um, who was New York City's health commissioner um, she uh, I think exemplified how to deal well with um, a crisis like this so when um, when Ebola fears were uh, at their height um, and a doctor named Craig Spencer arrived uh, in the US having been involved in controlling the outbreak in in West Africa uh, and was diagnosed with Ebola. Um, Bassett regularly appeared in the press as this, um, I think she was described by the Times as a palpable force of calm. Um, she reassured people. She spread the correct information because she had mm. access to um, you know, her own scientific background and also strong evidence-based advice. Um, she uh, went to um, places of business that Spencer had also visited um, to show that there was no risk of, of being infected just by being in those spaces. I think she ate meatballs with uh, New York's mayor uh, to this restaurant. Um, and uh, she really importantly held town halls with the Liberian community to make sure that they weren't being stigmatized, that they weren't subject to xenophobia um, and hate as a result of, of misplaced paranoia. I think that just shows like, that it's not impossible to maintain um, goodwill. Um, and togetherness during an outbreak, like it can be done, but it does require to ha- it does require having leaders with that unifying spirit.
0: Yeah, I imagine one other dimension that plays into. Um The way that we underprepare for, underweight the possibility of the pandemic is just that every year it seems like it's something else Mm -hmm. also. Mm -hmm. I mean, we've gone through – it's Zika virus one year, Ebola virus the next year, bird flu, swine flu, mad cow disease. How – First of all, why do does it seem like every year there's another big potential public health danger? Um, and how can we kind of uh, be appropriately attuned? What's the right way to think about mm. the different uh, seasonal new strains, new infections, new viruses that come out? Um, what's the right way to, to think about that without minimizing the potential dangers?
2: Oh, well, there are a lot of bad things out there that are trying to kill you. Uh, um, that's, that was not the calming part of the answer. <laughs> uh, but, but I think, like, you know, as as an individual, you don't need to be panicking about every single disease that crops up in some corner of the world. Uh, most of them are unlikely to reach you. Um, I think there definitely is a, a panic and neglect cycle. Um, you know, as I said, I, I don't think... It is your job as an individual to worry about this. It is the the public health agency's job, it is the CDC's job to be on the front lines of all of this. Um, I think as as an individual, it's just a matter of uh, not hiding anything if you're worried about being sick, going to the doctor. Um, I think public public systems work when. There's a spirit of trust and working together and generosity. Um, So I think if we could cultivate that kind of spirit where everyone is trying to do the right thing, um, that is maybe the way to think about how to fight an epidemic.
0: Is there Um, anything I should be listening for? Like, is there something that is a tell that, oh, no, this one really, really is worth paying attention to?
1: I mean, I feel like the, um, the, the common thread to all these threats is that they are inherently unpredictable. There are a lot of uh, viruses and other um, infections out there. There are thousands, perhaps millions, that we don't know about that that await discovery. Um, and w- I think some people feel that um, we might get to a point where we can reasonably predict which are most likely to jump into us. Um, uh, other virologists, uh, and I think I, would also argue that... Um, such events are so stochastic, so unpredictable, that our chances of doing that reliably are very negligible. Um, All we can do is to spot new outbreaks when they happen and to do our best to control them. But fortunately, I think... um, a lot of the solutions cut across diseases. They are societal and political solutions. Mm -hmm. They are a commitment to um, stable funding. Uh, They are a commitment to vaccinology research, um, regardless of the specific vaccine against the specific disease you're trying to make. They are about training epidemiologists, um, ensuring that public health labs are, are adequately funded and resourced. All of those defenses cut across Diseases, whether you're talking about Zika or Ebola or flu or anything else, you know, if you get the the infrastructure correct, and if you get the political will in place um, and the the trust and relationship set up, then you know that's our best defense against the things that we don't know about. And assuredly, the things we don't we don't know about are the things that are going to hit us in the future.
0: Well, Ed, thank you for traveling around the world to tell us about some of those things and people that we didn't previously know about. Uh, uh, you're welcome. Uh, sorry, sorry, I couldn't be the bringer of better news. You know what? You know what? I'm happy to know how many people there are are all around the world, um, underfunded or not, fighting to fighting the fighting the fight against there the bad definitely viruses. definitely are. There
1: definitely are. There is. I was going to say there's no shortage of them, but that's actually the opposite of, of <laughs> there, what's there true. A there are there are a lot of them, uh, uh, and I think everyone, including them, would love there to be more. Yeah.
2: So maybe the answer, if you want to do something, is become a public health official.
1: Right. I yeah. mean, yeah. Or maybe like hug your local public health <laughs> <Yes>. official.
0: <laughs> Figure out who your local public health official is. Yeah. And hug them.
1: Right. But maybe maybe not hug them. That's yeah. Uh, yeah. True. Bump. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> <Elbum bump. laughs>
0: With that, let us turn to our closing segment, Keepers, in which I ask, what have you read, heard, seen, watched, listened to, experienced recently that you do not want to forget? I'm going to start with a keeper from one of our listeners, Julie.
2: My keeper is, a couple weeks ago, and I know it's not this week, but a couple weeks ago, my aunt, my 87-year-old favorite aunt, took myself, my wife, and my 13-year-old grandsons to dinner and told them stories and passed along memories to them that some I didn't know, some I did know, and my keeper is, is at the end of it, when I took them back home to their parents' house, my grandsons were thrilled to tell their father about the story about the day when their Nana was born, <laughs> and to me, that was just amazing. Because, you know, 13-year-old boys listening to an 87-year-old woman tell stories, not happening very often in this day and age. So that's my keeper.
0: Wonderful. I would definitely put in a plug for the family stories. Uh, I record stories with my parents as often as I can. And some of those stories are fantastic, and I never would have known if I did not Designated times to sit down with them and ask them to tell me stories, particularly about uh, the time before I came into the world. Uh, Sarah, what is your keeper?
2: Um, so I've been trying to read more fiction to unwind. Hmm. And over the past two months, I've read three books set during World War II and one after the apocalypse. So I'm mean, going to talk about the book that's after the apocalypse. Uh, it's called It's a Theory of Bastards by Audrey Schulman. And it's about a bonobo researcher. And uh, she is studying bonobos in a facility in the Midwest and the modern world starts falling apart, basically. Um, and it's such a interesting and compelling story about human nature and evolution and free will but i also found it intensely frustrating at places as someone who writes about science so i am mentioning this because i really want to talk about it so (laughs) please at me if you have read it
0: awesome awesome say it again say the title of it again
2: uh theory of bastards by audrey shulman
0: fantastic and what do you want to keep
1: oh man um I recently wrote a story about these incredibly old, uh, beautiful trees called baobams. Mm. Um, They're they're sometimes called the upside down trees because they look as if someone has just like yoinked a tree out of the ground and turned it upside down and planted it back again. Their branches look like a root system. Um, And sadly, uh, a lot of these trees are dying. Like some of the oldest Mm. and biggest ones uh, have died suddenly um, in the last uh, few years, last decade or so and um and uh climate change seems to be the most likely explanation Mm. which is very tragic um but the the story sticks in my head because i think about just how much um these trees have experienced um the oldest one was i think 2500 years old um you know how many empires have risen in Fallen wow. in that time. You yeah. know, how much how much history has gone by while this thing was growing um and before it eventually fell? And and I think that's it's sort of a, a haunting and, and beautiful metaphor for the ways in which we are changing
0: the world around us. Absolutely. Yeah, the baobab trees. Uh my earliest memory of the Baobab trees came from the Little Prince. Yes, right. me too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh it's a sad thing to think that climate change is a... It's threatening them, say, are majestic. Um, my keeper this week is, um, is log rolling. Um, I'm, <laughs> I'm, uh, I want to shout out the 160 Years of Atlantic Stories project um, that our team has put together over the past um, several months since um, the beginning of November of 2017 when the Atlantic celebrated its 160th birthday. Our audience team has, day by day, been um, posting to the site um, a a story each weekday um, from a different year, a different successive year in the life of the Atlantic. Um, It's a compendium of stories, um, uh, some of which were incredibly prescient, some of which relate deeply to the world in which we now live, some of which... um, uh, read very differently in light of history than they did when they were published at the time. But nonetheless, it is quite a trove. Um, I'll mention a few pieces in particular that um, that stood out um, just in reviewing this archive over the past few weeks. Um, there's a story from August 1965 by Mrs. X called One Woman's Abortion um, that is quite a stunning read now. There are several pieces from the, um, early 70s and then again in the early 90s um, about job discrimination against women and gender discrimination, one piece by Wendy Kaminer called Crashing the Locker Room, um, Mm -hmm. which um, was from 1992, right around the time of of the Clarence Thomas trials and the the testimony of Anita Hill. Um, Once again, it's one of those pieces that sort of reads so Um, So interestingly now, Mm. in light of what has happened in the years since. So we'll throw a link to this project in the show notes, um, but it is just a tremendous record of journalism to sit with for a while. So I highly recommend to all of our listeners to go and check it out. Do you know what's not in that record? What is not in that record? The 1918
1: flu. Aha. We have no pieces in our archives about this incredible disaster that we started this show with. And I think that's really interesting. Yeah. Um, especially given, like, the prominence that, like, infectious disease has in, like, the collective consciousness and the news today.
0: We totally did miss the boat on 1918. However, I will shout out a piece by Justina Hill from the March 1944 issue, which is in the 160 Years of Atlantic (laughs) Stories trial, called How Bad is the Flu? Um, I'll note, one of the things about that story that's kind of remarkable is that, they think that they are on the precipice of just solving this problem <laughs> in 1944. <laughs> yeah. The the story ends not to not to Spoiler alert. Um, The story ends with the (laughs) sentence. um, Influenza and pneumonia are sometimes killers. We have learned much about them. We are bound to learn more. The possibility for their control seems brighter than it has ever been. As Theobald Smith said, among other aims adopted for the post-war period might well be included freedom from respiratory disease so <laughs> so close so close, <laughs> so, close right? so close nearly there I, just a few weeks more oh man <laughs> may the optimism of the american spirit live eternal <laughs> Dude, <laughs> and with that Ed, Sarah, thank you so much for joining us and not scaring us too much. <laughs> like thank, You're thanks for nothing, guys. <laughs> and thank you for the tremendous reporting from you both. I feel if I'm not unterrified, I at least am more knowledgeable, which is something. That's all I ask. <laughs> That'll do it for this week's Radio Atlantic. This episode was produced and edited by Kevin Townsend with production support from Kim Lau. The executive producer for Atlantic Podcasts is Catherine Wells. Our theme music, The Battle Hymn of the Republic, immortalized by the legendary John Baptiste. What is your keeper? What do you not want to forget? give us a call at 202-266-7600 and leave us a voicemail. Don't forget your contact information. Check us out at facebook.com slash radioatlantic and theatlantic.com slash radio. Catch our show notes in the episode description. And if you like what you're hearing, rate and review us in Apple Podcasts and subscribe in your preferred podcast app. Most importantly, thank you for listening. Spare a thought for those unsung heroes that keep us safe every day. And if that's you... Thanks. We'll see you next week.